Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard, and today is Wednesday, August 17th, 2022, and the end of week 25 of the Russia-Ukraine war. It's been 3,093 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 174 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. Let's start with some assessment of the current status of the war. First, Russian forces continue to make operational security errors contributing to Ukrainian successes. Second, the 1st Army Corps has likely abandoned direct assaults on Avdiivka and Marinka, and may be reallocating troops already from Pisky. Third, Ukrainian military leaders have maintained defensive lines across Ukraine despite having fewer resources and an artillery deficit. Fourth, Russian forces appear to seek weaknesses in Ukrainian lines and attempt to spread resources out with small attacks in multiple locations. Fifth, After the successful attacks in multiple locations against Russian command posts and ammunition depots, we anticipate punitive strikes on Ukrainian civilians before the end of the week. Sixth, Russian missile attacks across Ukraine are mostly from outdated Soviet-era air-to-sea munitions and air defense missiles used in a ground-to-ground capacity. And finally, Russia will not secure the Donbass by the self-imposed August 31st deadline. Let's take a look at some regional updates. We'll start in the Donbass region with the slovyansk bilohorivka berestova Triangle. A day after a series of attacks that exiled Luhansk Oblast administrative and military governor Serhii Haidai called, quote, massive, Russian forces, gaining additional protection from the Russian Air Force, withdrew from the area of Ivanodarivka back to the Verkhnokomyanka oil refinery. Russian forces shelled Spirna and then attempted to advance into the settlement. Ukrainian defenses repulsed the attack. It is reported they suffered significant losses in the failed offensive. Russian forces also shelled the settlements of Bilohorivka in Donetsk, Ryorivka, and Verknokomyanske. The former offices of the Ukrainian intelligence service in occupied Lysychansk were destroyed in a rocket attack launched by High Mobility Rocket Artillery Systems, or HIMARS. Governor Haidai reported the building was occupied by the 2nd Army Corps of the Luhansk People's Republic, or LNR. It is claimed over a 100 were killed and an unknown number were wounded, but we can't confirm the veracity of the casualty number. 
Shifting to assessment for a moment, Governor Haidai has consistently been a reliable source of information through the war and is conservative in his reports. Video from Lusychansk shows the building was reduced to rubble. Due to poor operational security, or OPSEC, providing a battle damage assessment, the daytime strike likely produced many casualties. In what may be the worst operational security failure of the war, officers and commanders of the 2nd Army Corps of the Luhansk People's Republic, or LNR, shared pictures of the new operations center, replacing the one destroyed, online. The pictures posted included all the meta tags, including precise geolocation. Following the guidelines of ethical journalism, we've elected not to identify the town or link to the photographs. On August 15th, an ammunition depot in Russian-controlled Rodakova was destroyed in a probable HIMARS attack. The ammo depot was located in a school. Homes around the area were damaged by ammunition cooking off and launching into the region around the campus. We significantly expanded the area of contested control west of Lyman in the Sviati National Park region. There have been several videos and reports from both pro-Russian and pro-Ukrainian sources of fighting in the area. Our assessment in the slovyansk bilohorivka berestova triangle is unchanged from August 14th. You can find it in our Week in Review episode from this past Sunday. To the south in Bakhmut, PMC Wagner Group and Russian VDV forces, supported by elements of the LNR 2nd Army Corps, made only small maneuvers after the failed advances on August 15th. Russian forces did not attempt to advance toward Yakovlivka, resorting to firing artillery and launching airstrikes on the settlement. Reconnaissance units probed Ukrainian defenses in Solidar near the area of the Naufjips sheetrock factory and returned to their positions. In support of the attempted advance on Solidar, Russian forces continue to attempt to advance on Bakhmutske. Russian forces tried to move into Zaitseve, 10 kilometers south of Bakhmut, using reconnaissance and force and were unsuccessful. There were skirmishes east of Bakhmut, but no attempts to advance closer to the city. Elements of the 1st Army Corps of the Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR, attempted to advance through the Mayorsk border crossing after Russian forces shelled Ukrainian positions to the north. They were unsuccessful. Following an artillery barrage on Shumi, DNR forces attempted to advance into the settlement and were unsuccessful. At the start of the war, we had assessed that Russian proxy forces controlled both sides of the border crossing between Ukraine and Russian-occupied Donbas. After receiving better intelligence, we moved the line of conflict south. This does not represent new territorial gains for Ukraine. Our assessment in Bakhmut is the same as it was on August 9th, which we recapped in yesterday's episode around minute 8 or 9. Moving on to southwest Donetsk and western Zaporizhia, the DNR ground offensives west of Donetsk are in an operational pause and may have reached a culmination point. Significant evidence indicates the attempts to capture Avdiivka and Marinka in the short term have been abandoned. Elements of the 1st Army Corps attempted to advance on Nevelske and Optin. The advance on Nevelske was unsuccessful, and fighting was ongoing in Spartak, southeast of Optin. After fighting to secure the Botivka mine ventilation shaft compound on the southeast edge of Piski, 
DNR forces abandoned their positions without a fight. Video from the Russian state media agency Russia Today showed Ukrainian forces had resecured the area and were shelled by Russian artillery. The evening report from the general staff of the armed forces of Ukraine reported that Ukrainian positions in Pisky were shelled. Based on social intelligence, the general staff report and Russia Today's video, we have recoded Pisky as contested and adjusted the map. West of Donetsk, Russian forces shelled and carried out airstrikes on Krasnohorivka, Avdiivka, and Marinka. Ukrainian forces shelled a water treatment plant in Donetsk City, causing additional damage. The site was previously attacked on March 16th. Donetsk hasn't had access to potable tap water for most of the war. We'll have more information on this in the War Crimes and Human Rights segment. Russian missiles destroyed several warehouses and electrical infrastructure in Kurokhova. Pro-Russian social media accounts claim the warehouses were filled with tanks, but pictures and video from the site while it was still smoldering did not show any wreckage or tank debris. Russian forces attempt an advance on Shevchenko and were unsuccessful. Russian and Ukrainian forces fired artillery, mortars, and rockets from multiple launch rocket systems, or MLRS, from Horlivka to Donetsk City to Velika Novosilka in the Donetsk Oblast, and Huliapola to Orkhiv to Komyanska in Zaporizhia. The intensity and concentration of the barrages were significantly higher than during the previous weeks. Some quick assessment. We have no explanation on why DNR forces would abandon the strategically important Butivka mineshaft. We have previously assessed that a lack of light infantry would make it extremely difficult for Russian forces and their proxies to hold any additional territory captured after securing the administrative borders of Luhansk. We assess that Russian forces can't secure the remainder of the Donbass before August 31st. In southern Ukraine, Russian forces continue to press Ukrainian defensive lines due to the arrival of reinforcements and testing capabilities. It is also likely an attempt to spread out Ukrainian resources to delay or prevent the next phase of the ongoing counteroffensive. Let's move on to the Kharkiv region, starting in northwestern Kharkiv. Members of the Azov Battalion conducted a special operation in Russian-controlled Ternova. The unit destroyed two Russian BMP infantry fighting vehicles, an ammunition depot, and an observation post. Russian forces responded by remotely mining the settlements of Peremoha and Ukrainka. Russian forces launched offensives toward Bazalivka and Labyaja, about 80 kilometers southeast of Kharkiv. Russian forces used thermite munitions in the area, with local officials from Chekhiv advising residents that the, quote, chandelier was not white phosphorus. We had marked this region as contested in mid-June due to significant activity by Ukrainian forces and additional intelligence reported to us by credible Ukrainian sources. Because the region had been quiet for more than a month and neither belligerent reported any activity in this area, we quietly deleted the contested region from the map on August 16th. We have reinstated the region, marked as contested. 
Russian forces shelled Ukrainian civilians and civilian infrastructure along the entire line of conflict, including firing rockets from MLRS into the Saltivka district of Kharkiv. Our assessment in northwestern Kharkiv is unchanged from August 12th. You'll find it in last Friday's episode around minute 8 or 9. On the Azum axis, Russian forces continued their attempts to recapture Mazanivka and were unsuccessful. A new offensive to recapture Bohorodichne was launched, resulting in Russian forces being pushed back. Russian forces shelled and then remote-mined Dibrovne. The general staff reported that Russian forces were fighting near Nova Dimitrivka. The settlement is nine kilometers southwest of the known line of conflict from the closest location, which would be the recently mined Dibrovne. Neither the Russian Ministry of Defense nor pro-Russian social media accounts reported a breakthrough in the area or an advance through the contested settlement of Sulirivka. The terrain to the south is open cropland with little cover. Out of an abundance of caution, we've added an area of contested control in what we believe is the most probable route. The railroad bridge in Russian-controlled Rushivka was damaged in an attack, severing the main ground line of communication, or G-lock, a.k.a. supply line, that heads northeast toward Kharkiv. Our assessment of the Azum axis is the same as it was on August 8th. You'll find it recapped in Monday's episode around minute 14. Let's get some updates from the Dnipro, Kherson, Mykolaiv, and Zaporizhia regions. In Kherson, Russian efforts to push Ukraine from the Inulets River bridgehead failed. Russian special operation forces attempted to flank Ukrainian positions in Bilohirka by advancing a platoon toward Bilokrinitsia. The unit was discovered, suffered heavy losses, and retreated. Simultaneously, Russian forces from Davri Brid advanced on Bilohirka, contested the town, and then were pushed back, suffering heavy casualties in the failed offensive. Russian forces made a second attempt to advance on Novohyorivka, northwest of Kherson, and were unsuccessful. Demonstrating poor operational security, Russian troops provided a battle damage assessment after a rocket attack from HIMARS hit a military base and warehouse in Nova Hakova. The facility was obliterated in the strike. Early reports stated there were at least 25 casualties. At the 43-second mark in the video showing the aftermath, Russian, quote, radar reflectors are shown, with the person recording appearing to point to them. Russia has installed dozens of these reflectors across Kherson, which are meant to confuse missiles. However, the M30-M31 rockets fired by HIMARS use GPS for guidance. Both Russian and Ukrainian forces launched airstrikes and fired artillery and rockets from MLRS along the rest of the line of conflict. Our assessment here is unchanged from August 14th. You can find it in our Week in Review episode from this past Sunday. In Dnipropetrovsk, the settlement of Nikopol was shelled overnight. There was damage to the Nikopol Highway and six homes, but no casualties. There has been no progress on efforts to demilitarize the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Russian state media continues to report that Ukraine is attacking the plant and wants to cause a meltdown by destroying the cooling circuit. Volodymyr Rogov, the Russian-appointed head of Zaporizhia, 
claims the cooling circuits were damaged in an artillery attack. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres will meet with officials in Lviv on August 18th to discuss the situation at Zaporizhia. The Russian state news agency TASS reported that Rogov invited Guterres to visit Enerhodar before traveling to Kiev to meet with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. After extending the invite, Rogov went on a screed about the United States, the United Nations, the British, nations hostile to Russia, and how Odessa, Lviv, and Kiev will be integrated into Russia. Guterres had not commented on the invite at the time of recording. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at malcontentnews. Moving on to the Black Sea and Odessa region, the seaside resort town of Zatoka was struck by two KH-22 air-to-sea cruise missiles fired by Russian Air Force Tu-22M3 heavy bombers. The attack destroyed a hotel and several homes, and there were four reported injuries. This was the 11th time the town was attacked since the start of the war. The KH-22 was designed in the 1950s and went into service in 1962. It was engineered to destroy aircraft carriers, and its designed role in modern warfare is irrelevant. The missile is notoriously inaccurate, and its guidance system is not designed to support use as an air-to-land missile. Russian state media reported that the naval airbase in Russian-controlled Yardevsky, Crimea, experienced a fire with several explosions. Two squadrons of the 37th Composite Aviation Regiment are stationed at the base, 12 Su-24 multi-role fighter airplanes, and 12 Su-25 ground-attack aircraft. If the reports are accurate, this is the second airbase in Crimea attacked in a week. Some assessment here. The lack of social media posts and open-source intelligence indicates this may be a Russian Ministry of Defense disinformation campaign. Russian sources have made claims of other attacks, particularly in Crimea and the Black Sea, that were untrue. The destruction of the Russian ammunition depot in Maiske damaged railroad tracks on Azovsky, temporarily suspending rail service, including access across the Kerch Bridge. Russian officials evacuated up to 3,000 people, according to TASS, 2,000 people, according to local officials. Russian-appointed head of Crimea, Sergei Aksenov, reported that the tracks had already been repaired and rail service would be re-established after a safety inspection. The series of explosions and rail closure caused a record number of cars to cross the Kerch Bridge back into Russia, causing long traffic jams. Looking to the west, two Russian KH-59 air-to-sea cruise missiles struck the Ukrainian Air Force base in Ozern in the Zhitomir Oblast. Two Russian Su-34 multi-role fighter planes operating in Belarusian airspace fired the missiles. Ukrainian officials reported the runway was cratered and several non-aviation vehicles were damaged. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. Heavy rains pounded large areas of Ukraine, creating flooding in many areas. 
The summer thunderstorm season has been unusually intense and is already starting to produce muddy conditions in some regions. Russian officials are blaming Ukrainian special operation forces for destroying multiple power transmission towers in the Kursk region. Russian FSB reported that between August 4th and 12th, six towers for electrical distribution carrying from 110 to 750 kilovolts connected to the Kursk nuclear power plant were destroyed. President Vladimir Putin accused the United States of intentionally dragging out the war in Ukraine in order to preserve its political power over the world, saying, quote, They have turned the Ukrainian people into cannon fodder. The situation in Ukraine shows that the United States is trying to drag the conflict out, and it acts in exactly the same way trying to fuel conflicts in Asia, Africa, and Latin America. End quote. In the interest of brevity, our assessment will stick to four points. First, it was President Putin who decided to invade Ukraine. Second, President Putin could end the war tomorrow if he simply withdraws his troops. Third, Russian forces, mostly with PMC Wagner Group, are engaged in civil war and internal conflict in at least six different African nations. Fourth, Putin is attempting to rewrite Latin American history. Okay, more than four points. Ukraine, as a nation, willingly gave up its nuclear arsenal with a signed agreement that Russia would never invade Ukraine unless Ukraine attacked Russia first. Had Ukraine kept its nuclear weapons after the collapse of the Soviet Union, it would have been the third largest nuclear power on the planet. Ukraine's fledgling leaders decided to give up their arsenal in the interest of global stability. Additionally, Several nations, including the United States, provided security assurance to aid Ukraine if the treaty was ever broken. Russia has sent a message to the world that they cannot be trusted, and a nuclear deterrent is required to protect themselves from unjustified aggression. The war in Ukraine has likely expanded nuclear proliferation. But back to the news. Speaking at the same event, Putin repeated his claims that the special military operation was going to plan, and restated that Russia's interest only extends to the Donbass. Putin also bragged that Russian weapon systems were years, possibly decades, ahead of the rest of the world, saying, quote, We are talking about high-precision weapons and robotics, combat systems based on new physical principles. Many of them are years, perhaps even decades, ahead of their foreign counterparts, and significantly superior in terms of tactical and technical characteristics. End quote. The Russian T-14 Armada tank is considered one of the best tanks in the world on paper, but eight years after the first prototype was built, Russia has not been able to solve engineering issues or field a single company. The Su-57 is Russia's first fifth-generation fighter, but only six are operational after its first flight 12 years ago. The aircraft is not considered superior to their Chinese and American counterparts, and Russian engineers have been incapable of building the engines designed for the airframe. The Russian S-400 air defense system was so feared before the start of the Russia-Ukraine war that it was a sticking point holding back the sale of fighter planes to Turkey. The NATO nation uses a mix of Russian and Western military hardware and fields the S-400. Six months later, the S-400 has been revealed as a system incapable of meeting its mission objectives. 
In previous situation reports, we've examined claims about the tidal wave causing Poseidon nuclear torpedo as an engineering and physics impossibility. Although nuclear weapons can create small tidal waves, the Russian Ministry of Defense has claimed Poseidon can produce waves a thousand meters high. Energoatom, the Ukrainian state agency that operates its nuclear power plants, reported that it experienced a large-scale cyber attack. The Russian group People's Cyber Army launched a three-hour distributed denial-of-service, or DDoS, attack. The attack did not impact safety or critical operations. Ukrainian officials have expressed concern about 14 S-400 air defense systems Russia has stationed on the Belarus border. Like the S-300, the missiles in the S-400 can be used for ground-to-ground attacks. Officials in Kyiv are concerned that the systems could be used to launch a massive attack on August 24th, Ukrainian Independence Day. UN Secretary General Guterres will meet with Ukrainian President Zelensky and Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan in Lviv on August 18th. Topics will include grain shipments, economics, and the situation at Zaporizhia. After the meeting in Lviv, Guterres will travel to Odessa. There are reports that Turkish military forces crossed the international border into Syria and were engaged in fighting in the town of Afrin. Turkey sought to erode support for the Kurds as a condition for Finland and Sweden to join NATO. The Kurdistan Workers' Party, or PKK, has been accused of dozens of terrorist attacks and border attacks for decades. The organization is a designated terrorist organization by Turkey, the EU, the United States, and other nations. The Kurdish uprising began in 1984, and over the last 42 years, more than 40,000 people have died. Germany has committed to deploy troops to Bosnia as part of the United Nations peacekeeping mission that has been in place since 1999. The token force of 30 soldiers is the first German deployment to the Eastern European nation since 2012. Tension between Kosovo and Bosnia reached a boiling point in July, with many in diplomatic circles blaming the Russian FSB for creating regional instability. In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is no graphic detail in today's report, but if you are sensitive to descriptions of human rights abuses, please feel free to skip ahead about two minutes to the next segment. The International Red Cross now claims that its employees were able to visit the Russian penal colony in Olenivka, Donetsk, on two occasions. The revelation reverses earlier claims that they had never been allowed inside the compound. The ICRC stated they had no opportunities to meet with prisoners face-to-face, and Russian proxy forces would not allow unsupervised meetings, violating the Geneva Convention. In July, 53 Ukrainian POWs were killed, and another 130 were wounded in a staged attack executed by PMC Wagner Group. The Russian leadership has not allowed international investigators to visit the compound after the blast or return the bodies of the dead to Ukrainian officials. Our team of researchers analyzed the available evidence and concluded the explosion was caused by a bomb placed inside the barracks, not a missile strike. You can read the study along with our full situation report on Patreon. 
the residents in the separatist city of Donetsk have had reduced to no water service since April. When water does come from the tap, it is frequently fouled and full of rust. Severe thunderstorms passed through the city, where residents collected rainwater for drinking and washed their hair in the maelstrom. Since March, more than 165,000 ethnic Jewish Russians have fled the nation. Jewish people have been leaving out of fear driven by Russia's slide into nationalism and its history of anti-Jewish programs as far back as the 19th century. Anna Sternschus, professor of Yiddish studies at Toronto University and specialist in Jewish history in Russia, told BBC, quote, I have been thinking quite a bit about why there is such a rush to go because we're not seeing a huge surge of anti-Semitism. But then, putting my historian hat on, I see that every time something happens in Russia, some upheaval, some change, Jews are always in danger. End quote. In less than six months, more than 12% of ethnic Jews have fled Russia, most to Israel through the Law of Return and the Jewish Agency's aid. The United States Agency for International Development has committed $68 million to buy grain for export from Ukraine for the World Food Program. The money will enable the purchase, shipping, storage, and distribution of 150,000 metric tons of wheat. Russian reporter Zemfira Sulemanova was killed in Ukraine when the car she was in drove over an anti-tank mine. Sulemanova was a reporter with Russia Today and was with the unaffiliated Russian news agency War Gonzo at the time of her death. Russia Today reported that Sulemanova was killed by an anti-personnel pedal mine and did not mention the others in her entourage. They later updated the story, claiming that Sulemanova had never worked for the Russian state media news agency. War Gonzo disputes the Kremlin's version of events. The 25-year-old had ties to far-right organizations and was considered in Western circles to be a propagandist. War Gonzo reported that she was killed on August 15th, along with Eduard Limanov, Ilya Guriev, and Yevgeny Pavlenko outside of Donetsk. Wargonzo also claims that Sulemanova was a volunteer and not operating in an official capacity. The unaffiliated news agency frequently embeds within military units and has reported while under fire. Bloggers, streamers, and other unaffiliated news agencies have a shaky relationship with Moscow due to the lack of direct control they have over their content in the field. Sulemanova's first and only report was in Yasinuvata, close to the front lines of fighting in Avdiivka. Ironically, Wargonzo's slogan is, quote, Yes, death. In geopolitical news, French President Emmanuel Macron spoke with Ukrainian President Zelensky about the situation in Zaporizhia. The two leaders also discussed grain exports from Ukraine and accelerating shipments. Macron also spoke with India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi. The two discussed how India could help bring Russia to the table and end the war. Russia and India have close relations, and the nation of one billion people is Russia's largest arms client. Turkey is moving to try and improve ties with Armenia after a century of hostility. In July, the two nations struck a deal to allow air cargo to fly between the two countries. Russia has long held a political grip on the South Caucasus, and geopolitical experts believe that Turkey sees an opening to crack into the region. A border crisis erupted between Armenia and Azerbaijan in 2021, which required Russia to deploy a peacekeeping mission in the two nations. 
Russia was forced to draw down troops and military equipment to be sent to Ukraine, causing tensions to rise. Armenia is likely seeking to thaw relations with Turkey, which has one of the world's largest and most modern militaries, to protect itself from aggressive neighbors. Finnish officials have changed the music at the dam in Imatra, which opens the gates at the same time every day. The dam is a popular tourist attraction for Russians and traditionally plays classical music from the Finnish composer Jean Sibelius. The song has been swapped out with a classical music version of the Ukrainian national anthem. Finland is moving to dramatically restrict the number of visas it issues to Russian nationals, with tourist visas expected to take the biggest hit. According to Russian state media, Estonia closed the Narva Ivongorod border checkpoint with Russia on August 16th. In economic news, Russia's Ministry of Economic Development predicts the Russian economy will contract by 4.2% in 2022, while inflation will rise to 13.4%. The GDP forecast is rosier than outside assessment, which predicts the economy will shrink by 8%. The same forecast predicts that the Russian economy will continue to shrink in 2023. Russian news agency TASS reported that Japan had restarted oil imports from Russia in July, but it one-third the volume from last year. The ruble was unchanged, with an exchange rate of 61 rubles to 1 U.S. dollar. Oil prices continued to drop, with WTI crude at $87 a barrel and Brent closing at $92 a barrel. United States RBOB wholesale gasoline for spot market delivery declined to $2.91 a gallon, or $0.77 a liter. SRW Chicago wheat futures dropped to $0.81 a bushel for December 2022 delivery. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.